to me, the most important consideration is there is no rules anymore. And segmentation of companies becomes really, really hard. You know, so instead of spending a lot of time around how do you segment and how do you profile companies, let's talk about the business itself. I'm Adam Polka. And I'm Bill Denby. Together, we'll be talking to supply chain experts from around the world who are tackling challenges in their corner of the industry. We believe that people are the change makers that drive innovation. That's why this supply chain podcast is about learning from those who lead by example. We hope that the conversations you hear will inspire you to drive change within your own organization. This is the Great Supply Chain Podcast. Let's jump in. All right. Welcome, everyone. Let's get into it. I'm Adam Polka, and you are now tuned in to the Great Supply Chain Podcast. Uh, joining us today as our guest co-hosts, Bill Denby and Guy Cortain. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me join this episode, Adam. Uh, really looking forward to hearing from Guy and, uh, and Neville, too. Absolutely. Thanks. So today uh, we're going to talk about modern e-commerce at scale and uh, how supply chains are adapting to industry forces. Uh, the world of e-commerce fuel distribution is entering into the weird teenage years. Uh, lots of experimentation and everyone's just trying to figure out what role they play out there. Uh, so to discuss and dissect, uh, we're welcoming our guest, Vice President of Global E-Commerce at DHL, renowned speaker, advisor, and innovator, Nabil Maluli. Nabil, uh, we're happy to have have you join us. Welcome. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So um, before we, we kick into uh, the discussion, I want our listeners to know that Guy, Bill, and Nabil are uh, presenting together at Modex at the end of March. Their session is titled Distribution Tools and Techniques to Adapt to an E-Commerce World. Uh, I wanted to bring the band together beforehand to, uh, to offer up a bit of a teaser. So if you're headed to Modex and if this podcast whets your appetite, uh, make sure to uh, stop by and check it out. So Nabil, I wanted to, to kick off with this. Uh, in 2019, you said that we have not yet seen disruption in the logistics space, that disruption is not yet here in the way that Netflix and WeChat disrupted their industries. How about now? Have we, have we seen the level of disruption that you were referring to? I don't, I don't think so. I think we are in a evolution, not a revolution phase. I think we are seeing um, different models and different... Um, part of the supply chain being really reconsidered. And, and uh, I think we're in a phase where we see accelerated investments in the industry, which is really good, right? If you look at the uh, venture capitalist investment in the industry, they have doubled um, the last 12 months compared to the year before. So I think that's going to be really pushing a, a strong wave of innovation. But when you look at what people call disruption, a, a truly, you know, is, is that really changing the industry overall or is that changing the way consumers or customers are operating? I don't see it yet. I think we are seeing big movements, uh, robotics, integration of technology and the importance of technology is more than ever clear in everybody's organization and the importance of doing something different, better, faster and more effective is now an obvious topic for everybody. But I don't think we are seeing yet, you know, um, an organization or a, a model that is completely uh, disrupted to the, to the industry. 
Yeah, and I, I think uh, to Nabil's point, I think what's interesting is, you know, I saw some recent numbers that came out that said, you know, we're looking at trend lines of e-commerce reaching 20% of overall retail. I think what's interesting about that number, though, is, you know, how much of that number is pure e-com, how much of it is a combination of store, you know, digital transactions. So to Nabil's point, I think what we forget sometimes is we, we sort of are looking for this big, big bang type situation where all of a sudden there's massive disruption and, you know, retail or e-commerce is done completely differently when if you look at it you know it's been an evolution now have there been sort of some bigger you know accelerations absolutely i think covid was one of them where all of a sudden we saw a lot of movement towards you know much more e-commerce much more fulfillment techniques that we otherwise didn't think of but one could argue those changes were already in works it's just that covid accelerated them from being a 12 to 18 month project to being a hey we need to get this done now right so for example if you listen there was a great interview with the ceo of lowe's at the beginning of the pandemic and he mentioned that BOPIS was on their roadmap for the year, but all of a sudden COVID hit and they were like, you know what, this BOPIS thing, we got to do it now, right? We can't wait till the end of the year because our customers can't come into our stores, but we still need to move inventory. And oh, by the way, our customers are all working from home. So all those home projects now are being bubbled up themselves. So the demand's going up. So I think we've, you know, I think there's certainly from the outside, there could appear to be some sort of big revolutionary things happening. But I think those of us, like Nabil and, and us on this on this podcast who've you know lived, breathed this world, we've sort of seen these evolutions happening or these progressions happening behind the scenes, but they just sort of pop to the general public from time to time. But I, I totally agree with Nabil. I think it's certainly uh, more of an evolution, not a revolution right now. Well, let me, let me follow up on that then because it ties into uh, Nabil's LinkedIn profile. Uh, on, uh, on his uh, cover page, there's a quote by Alan Kay uh, that says, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So Nabil, are you in a position now where that disruption is something that you are creating in your role? And maybe you can give a little bit of a background on your role and sort of what you do at DHL. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in charge of the e-commerce solutions uh, globally. So it uh, includes fulfillment operations plus last mile delivery and the management of returns. You know, I like to say that I spend my time working hard to try to get everything you buy and we all buy faster cheaper and in, more, in a more sustainable way, right? And uh, I think, you know, you're really working strongly on the adoption of technology and the digitalization agenda. You know, I think when you think about the contribution that you can do as a professional into the industry, you have people that will be looking at disrupting one specific area or really make a meaningful change in one area of the supply chain, you know, in the transportation, optimization, in the way you receive orders, in the way you manage inventory, in the way you manage a warehouse. You know, I, I'm looking more onto the bigger, the bigger picture and the end-to-end. -end. And so my role is really to be looking at what are the best inbreed companies in each categories across the supply chain and really try to put together a comprehensive solution in order to reach more sustainable solutions, more effective, um, and you know, ultimately more effective not only in terms of cost, but also in terms of usage of energy, a, a speed to consumer, and so on. So um, within DHL, I'm not um, an organization that is acquiring heavily uh, and buying technology organizations. We are in the um, 
road to partner and, and build strategic alliances with companies that we think are doing a really good job in that. I think the future of supply chain is going to be around collaboration and is going to be around really connecting the dots between the different areas of the business. Um, so certainly working hard to, to bring a, a significant contribution towards that future of uh, automation, of technology, of building sustainable models. Um, you know, that's also one of the reasons why we don't play, for example, in the, in the next 10 minutes type of deliveries. Right. Um, you know, so we're really trying to look at what are the models that are going to be really making a big impact long term and that are not um, you know, a short term trend or, or just a hype. And so in, in that perspective, definitely trying to bring on uh, what we define as best in class uh, companies to work with us and to jointly put all these solutions together, integrate them effectively to be able to, to bring a holistic, a improved experience to our customers, which ultimately result in a better experience to all of us as consumers. So one of the things that we've seen over the last perhaps, I don't know, three or four years has been a convergence, more, probably more than that, where distributors, 3PLs, manufacturers, retailers are all having to act alike because uh, retailers are starting to create brands and have to become manufacturers and need distribution. And they're moving that requirement across to 3PLs. And, and it's just a whole mass of you know, manufacturers going direct to consumer. And that convergence, we're starting to also see, I think anyway, in the, the world of e-commerce. And those traditional fulfillment methods that we used to see, you know, the, the in-house fulfillment, third-party fulfillment, and then drop shipping. We're also seeing those converging. We're seeing lots of blending and lots of change in that area, a lot of innovation. Um, what's your take on the blurring of that innovation and those lines and how innovation is changing the process of fulfillment uh, for the supply chain of, uh, of the future? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I think what you, you describe, you know, through that convergence is definitely something that we see playing a huge role. There is this uh, great book from Simon Sinek, uh, The Infinite Game. Uh, I don't know if you, if you read it, but I think we are in the space of retail and in the space of supply chain. We are really at that a description of what he defines by a, a finite game and an infinite game, which is in a finite game, you have clear rules, you know exactly what are the metrics of success and you know how to play that game. And it's very clear that you are a winner or a loser. And in infinite game, all these rules are not actually applying into the same way. And then, so there is no really clear criteria of success. And I think what we are seeing now in the convergence is really this movement towards, there are no rules anymore, right? I mean, companies that started online become um, payment provider. I mean, companies that started to sell merchandise become payment platform and it start to become actually a business that is double of their revenue. If you look, for example, Mercado Libre, which is the largest marketplace in Latin America, you know, their financial services now are way more important into their business than the marketplace itself. You start to see retailers that go into, traditional retailers that are going into the, uh, into the secondhand markets. You start to see manufacturers that want to go direct to consumers. I mean, we saw during the pandemic, big announcement from companies like Pepsi, which is really a revolution for their business model to go direct to consumers. So I think to me, the most important consideration is there is no rules anymore. 
and segmentation of companies becomes really, really hard. You know, so instead of spending and what I've been trying to do, you know, within my role is instead of spending a lot of time around how do you segment and how do you profile companies, let's talk about the business itself, right? Because many of these models are actually not new. For example, Nike does a factory to consumer for many years. Uh, they do it for not for 100% of their SKUs, but they do it for their personalized items, right? And so when you look at that, you know, technically it has nothing new. It's being done already for decades by some organizations. But when you start to look at more categories going into that model, well, what are the implications for brands and for retailers into their business model? You know, one thing that, that for example, is not um, talked a lot, but I think it's a, it's a major, major impact in the way we should be thinking about the convergence of retail is when you look within the marketplace of Amazon, where the sellers are located. Today, more than 50% of the sellers are based in China. That number was below 20% like three years or four years ago. So what it tells you is that the competition is not even the next retailer. It's really now we're playing in this global inventory competition. And so what you should be really looking at is how is this impacting you, the categories of product you're selling, the consumers you are selling and the consumers you're trying to reach in order to be able to define the right strategy. I think we see some organizations, you know, um, like Walmart that have really uh, tried many different uh, strategies in order to be able to stay ahead in their you know, leading position in the space. Or you see companies like Target, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of Target, um, which I think has really built uh, a model of transforming the company that has really looked at where are my strengths and how do I truly leverage my strength, which in their case is the combination of a truly omnichannel experience with you know, uh, today more than 85% of their sales coming from stores. And so w when I meet customers, what I'm really trying to, to discuss with them when they talk about their strategy and what channel they should be on is where are your consumers, right? Um, where would they look for your product today? And as, you know, as basic as this sounds, oftentimes people look at each other and they're like, like what do you mean? I'm like, you ask me, should you be selling products on the marketplace or not? I'm asking you, would your clients, your main consumers, be looking for your products in the marketplace or not? And that should be the only definition of your strategy as to should you sell on marketplaces or not? And so I think the fundamental um, aspect of this is really go back to the customer and try to look at what are these customers looking for and not everybody is looking for the same thing. Hey, Nabil, I, I like what you said, but it's interesting because one of the things I, I'm hearing, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but with all these, these ability for companies and brands convergence, right? Whether you're no longer a brand or direct to consumer or a retailer, you could be a finance company, you could be a marketing you know, arm, if you will. I mean, I think one of the examples you gave was spot on, but I, I, I see now like you go to Office Depot or Staples and, and yes, they sell office products, but now they're renting out office space and services, right? So are they a retailer? Are they a services-based company? Uh, they're real estate company you know but at the end of the day what i'm hearing is at the end it's just about the customer is that what you're seeing you know with the retailers and companies you talk to you have to focus first and foremost i know it's a cliche 
on the customer and your customer, and then more importantly, your customer, the segment they're in, and then plan your supply chain to meet what that customer looks like. I mean, is that sort of what you're you're trying to, and, and within that, obviously the fulfillment strategy and other parts of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. And as you said, right, it's a cliche, but it's really easy to say, it's really hard to do. And, you know, when you look at a lot of the strategy of companies and even on the annual reporting and so on, how much information do you see about their customers, right? Um, in board meetings, how much of the conversation is around customers um, and not internal views? So absolutely, I think I think it's really to put that customer definition, business, business requirement or, or expectations, needs, in the center and you see i think that's also why many of the digitally native brands have been really successful i think they have differentiated themselves through that customer focus um, and how they reach out to the consumers more than because they have products that are significantly better um, or significantly different all right so i want to jump around a little bit i want to i want to talk about the gig economy uh, from Uber Eats and Instacart to uh, contractors and side hustlers, um, it, it's really defining this uh, era of the labor market, uh, for better or worse. Uh, Amazon has exemplified their use of the gig economy in the last mile, but uh, we're starting to see adoption in many other areas. Nabil, what would be your advice for those affected, and and how should they take advantage of this trend? I think the gig economy is here to stay. I think if you look at the numbers of um, new entrepreneurs and people that want to actually um, own their their business, you see that that's something that is uh, linked to the trend of flexible work time and also um, newer generation wanting to be able to have a lot more flexibility than maybe previous ones. And so all these factors of lifestyle, of technology are enabling that today you can actually have the ability to use crowdsource fleets in a way more effective manner than before. I think um, the combination of social change plus technological one is the most powerful combination. And we are really in the middle of that. Um, the, the COVID has been also a big catalyst for this because all the delivery networks were at full capacity. And when you have that type of situation, this becomes a very appealing value proposition. And that's why we saw, for example, Uber launching their Uber Connect or their Uber Direct during the pandemic, because obviously uh, the ride hailing business was, was down. And so you have this capacity of execution and that you can use it uh, for other purpose. I think the large organizations the large delivery organizations were, with the exception of Amazon, were, I would say, concerned by the model because it's actually hard to maintain a high level of standard and also to maintain safety, manage risks uh, when you have a crowdsource fleet. Um, because, you know, I mean, you know, you could get your deliveries uh, done by any type of vehicles, people without uniforms. I mean, there are different um, implications of doing it that way. But I think ultimately people will get more comfortable over time with the models. Organizations are getting more comfortable with the model. And we saw, for example, some large organizations also in the delivery space acquiring 
companies that are specialized in that crowdsource model because it does bring a, a benefit of flexibility and it does bring a benefit of more agile network that you can you know either plug in as an additional capacity on top of what what is your regular business or you can also plug it in for example if you're entering into a new market and you don't want to invest heavily in assets and and delivery uh, uh, networks uh, that you own and operate so i think the model is very interesting i think the model is is very valuable because it also allow to optimize the overall uh, uh, you know assets that we have on the road generally speaking but usually uh, a crowdsource fleet will be less effective than a highly um, optimized uh, professional fleet. Um, so there is pros and cons, but I think it's here to stay. And I think it's something that we should be looking at in organizations to leverage more and more. Hey, Nabil, just to follow up on that. And I, I, think, your, I think your point was spot on about the difference between a gig economy and a well-organized fleet, so to speak. How do you see the the reality? And I think what you said too, which is, hey, you never know what's going to be delivering your product. It might be, you know, might be some guy in his Volkswagen Beetle, or some guy pulls up in a van, or some guy shows up in a bicycle, and that's okay. But at some point, that fulfillment last mile becomes part of your brand, part of your your persona. Do you see there a point where you know some of these brands, some of these companies have to start? reining in some of the gig economy and take more control of it because again if i'm brand x i have a certain persona and you know some guy shows up in a beat up jalopy to deliver the product even though it's well packaged and all this all of a sudden i've lost some of that intimacy with the customer is that something that you're seeing i mean is that something that we're you, you we're going to see sort of a tipping point with that where yeah gig economy is great helps with flexibility helps with when we need excess capacity but there's certain limitations to it that we need to start being aware of today Absolutely. I mean, that's why there are certain brands that will tell you there is no way you're going to operate and you're going to deliver my business with that um, with that type of deliveries. I mean, there are already brands that will put the rule that that's not going to be acceptable. You know, one thing that nobody talks about is that um, the the theft in the U.S. is actually pretty high. You know, a, there's a recent a uh, survey from uh, Safewise, a home security firm that uh, that uh, showed that last year there was 210 million packages stolen in the US. And so that's something that nobody is really talking about and nobody's really um, publicly putting out there because you know these are not statistics that will put anybody in, in, in a strong position, right? But it's also a reality, you know, in, in the level of service you're giving, in your on-time delivery performance, in what you just described, Guy, as, as how do you make that experience uh, a good experience and you standardize it? Because we know, uh, I mean, we all, ha we all have our own personal experiences in when it comes to e-commerce, right? I mean, you have the delivery guy that put it in front of the door. You have the one that put it, even if it's raining, he leaves it under the rain. They're the one that will put it into a bag. I mean, and so that standardization of the experience is important because sometimes it's it's not meaningful. You know, if I'm receiving a package of diaper for my son, you know, well, you know, if it's outside in under the rain, no big deal, it's covered in, in plastic. If it's something that is more sensible, I might be more preoccupied by, by the delivery experience. And the truth is the delivery uh, person doesn't know if they are delivering an iPhone um, or if they are delivering a package of diapers. 
um, well, diapers they will know now because most of them are not repackaged. But um, you know, just just this reality is also something that uh, that is a consideration. But again, I do think that there are ways to improve that experience. You know, you can even with a, a, a crowdsource delivery fleet uh, or gig economy uh, based fleet, you can actually improve the standard. You can train the people through technology. You can improve the guidance that you give for people to not have to take a decisions. There is a lot of workflow, workflow development in delivery systems, in TMSs, in order to improve geolocalization, improve the delivery time, improve the exception management, improve the delay and uh, consequently, um, you know, if there's going to be a package that's not going to be delivering on time with notification to consumers. So I think there is there is technology that is also being built to also make this model more effective, safer, and improved. So I think um, it is going to be something that uh, that companies will have to uh, to adopt a, a, at certain point, at least to a certain extent. What do you think about the way that the gig economy? Um, is very much an on-demand type of situation and your ability to forecast labor and your labor availability because, I mean, obviously labor is on everybody in the supply chain's mind right now. There's supply chain decisions being made around labor availability like never has before. How does the, uh, how does the fact that in, the, in this on-demand gig economy you can't accurately predict your available labor on any particular day, night, you know, um, off into the future. How, how do you think that's going to level out? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, actually, I think, Billy, it's a great question. This is one of the biggest problems, actually, of the model, because you are competing with basically one of the gig economy driver. Even in the warehouse now, there are a couple of solutions and technology that are helping to bring gig workers in, in warehouses at larger scale. Um, you know, you're competing for people's time. So the person has the choice to drive for Uber, for DoorDash, for Lyft, you know, or they can be driving for you. And so you can actually have pretty good prediction as to how much uh, or how many people can you get. That's not the hardest. The hard part is to know how much it's going to cost you because the pricing that is used under these models, particularly the ride hailing models, are viable models. So a driver can get X amount today and he can get X amount tomorrow. So if I don't pay him more than what he would get maybe delivering with another company, I'm not sure he's gonna come to work for me. And so that's where it becomes really, really hard to actually predict how much it's gonna cost you because it's all about money in that case. Meaning if I put offers out there into a network where I tell them I'm gonna pay you $80 per hour, no matter how many packages you deliver, I'll get drivers. Now, is that is that business a sustainable business? Absolutely not, right? So that's where the complexity really is. And it also probably depends upon your competition. Absolutely. So let's let's move across to um, whether it's the warehouse or or some other aspects of the supply chain. Labor has become really tough, and labor creates automation. Now we're seeing in the EU. The high cost of labor has driven automation in various aspects of the supply chain for many years. But we're starting to see that in North America too, where 
This significant cost of labor and lack of availability is driving um, huge changes in the adoption of automation in various areas. Um, what do you think that uh, we should be telling to these these uh, organizations that are starting to look at automation like they never have before um, uh, in in whatever area of the supply chain that these uh, that they specialized in? Look, I think we are at a tipping point when it comes to automation. Um, I get the chance to speak to a lot of investors also um, and advise a couple of large investment firms. Um, the reality is that if you look at the percentage of increase in labor in the US as an example, last year, depending on which area of the supply chain you're looking at, but in the peak time or in certain areas, we're talking about generally across the board 25, 30% in increase. That's just last year, right? Um, and so when you start to factor that to the raise that we had done already before in order to start to match some of the expectations of the, of the workforce in this type of environment, you know, $15 an hour, $17 an hour, you start to realize that the cost of labor is going to be what will make adoption of technology um, a, a, at a much faster pace. You know, ultimately, a automation and technology is all about making more money. A, you know, and not in the bad sense, right? It is, you know, people oftentimes think about cutting costs and so on, but it's not really about cutting costs. Automation and technology in the supply chain is about making money. Either you're increasing sales, you're increasing customer experience, you are reducing cost or you're improving productivity in certain areas, but ultimately the final outcome is to grow sales and to make that supply chain more efficient so that the company can have a competitive advantage through that supply chain. And so one of the critical factors in any of the business cases when it comes to automation is the return on investment and how appealing is the solution compared to a manual solution or semi-manual solution. And so if you think about that and you think, well, it has increased the last two years, 30, 35%, any business case, any technological business case that would not have been approved two years ago because the technology, you know, would not come, you know, in terms of ROI positive, a because the comparison to labor cost was, you know, maybe 20% off in terms of Delta. Well, today, they will be ROI positive. And so you're going to see, in my opinion, a really, really large deployment and a really, really large adoption because of that. And the second, I think, factor that also many people um, tend to forget is many of the organizations in the space are relatively new. Um, and when I say new, um, they are seven, eight, nine years old. But in the automation space, that's not a long time. So many of the companies have actually, we are reaching to the point where they have actually matured their technology and they are really ready to scale and they're really ready to go you know, into a much bigger uh, uh, manufacturing capability and the ability to roll out their solution at much better cost and so on. And so I think the fact, this, this combination of these two factors is going to be really uh, uh, powerful. And I think we're going to see a huge adoption um, in the coming 12 months, 24, 36 months. I mean, we just announced uh, uh, an alliance with, um, with uh, Boston Dynamics on their new stretch robot, uh, which is uh, um, an autonomous unloading 
solution for loose, loose cartons. And we announced also a large investment in autonomous forklifts. We announced, we announced a large investment into picking assistance. Um, so I think, you know, a, and we have, obviously we are not the only ones, right? A, many organizations are also uh, investing heavily in the space. A, and I think the technologies also that allow you to integrate a, like taxis are critical technologies in order to be able to, to automate. Because if you are not powered by a very sophisticated system a, that allows you to bring on this type of automation and solutions, well, you just cannot do it, right? I mean, you, that's kind of the first step in order to bring that automation in. Hey, Nabil, you know, obviously, I think really good examples, and I think your your partnership with uh, with Boston uh, Boston Dynamic is really cool. Like the robots that you guys are employing are, are really you know state of the art. But that begs the question. Obviously, DHL, right, massive company, global reach. You have the deep pockets to do this investment. It makes a lot of sense. But what are you seeing from the automation side today in terms of how are the the companies sort of downstream from that, right? The the SMB or the midsize companies, right? How are they going to approach this from investing in automation versus labor? I mean, is it even more imperative for them to to really start looking at this or to have some kind of automation strategy because of the factors you mentioned around labor, uh, speed of you know fulfillment needs things of that nature I think for the for the um, you know the medium-sized organization and even the small ones it is going to be also critical to adapt um, ultimately the competitivity in the space is going to be just more and more complex and more and more tense and also it's not only about cost it's also about ability to execute fast so scale scale matter and when it comes to automation it matters even more um, because obviously um, these investments could be large investments, in, particularly when we talk about fixed automation. Now, what I think is particularly interesting around what we are seeing in the market is there are companies that are also coming, on, coming to the market with very agile and very um, light solution. Um, that do not require heavy investment, but that will allow, for example, companies to improve productivity or improve customer experience, which could be pure software or software plus hardware. Um, you know, yesterday I was um, uh, mentoring a company called um, Ox, which is a US-based company that is developing um, a, a software that is supporting the picking operations um, that is a component of software and hardware. and you know, their premise is that you don't have to invest into heavy, um, you know, heavy automation or you don't have to make uh, major changes into your, your layout. And you're not going to get the productivity increase that you will get with, um, you know, automation solutions like picking assistants or a large automation systems. But you can get, you know, maybe a plus 30 plus uh, a 40 percent increase into your operation um, with very light and very low investments. So I think we're going to see uh, 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 also a large amount of new companies coming into the space that are going to try to cover uh, that small and medium-sized segment. I think that that segment is for the moment un unattended. Um, I will also expect um, a, that uh, Amazon will do something in the space. Um, I mean, two years ago, if I'm not if I'm not wrong, it was two years ago, or a year and a half, they announced these very large investments um, in the Amazon Robotic uh, a group um, in Boston. I think it was 2,000 engineers. 
um, and, and I'm sure that there is something that is being also, um, uh, you know, uh, this is just a hypothesis, but I'm sure that there is something that is being prepared there to be more of off-the-shelf type of robotic solutions for, for that type of, of segment as well. No, I think you're right, Nabil. I think another Amazon announcement more recently is that they're opening up their platform uh, for people to tie into, and that's uh, that's very interesting and potentially disruptive for the space. So I think you're you're spot on with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes people think about automation also on the hardware side because it's it's what we can see, it's what we can feel. But um, I believe that the hardware side will be commoditized. I would say between. 10 and 15 years but if you if you think about like how do you build strong competitive advantage in the long term i think the software is going to be really is going to be really where you're going to be able to make um, a clear differentiation long long term because um, the other element is you see for example companies um, like geek plus for example from china that are penetrating very aggressively a lot of the markets, right? And so you start to compete uh, with organizations that are manufacturing robotic solutions in Boston compared to companies that are manufacturing um, robotic solutions maybe in, in, in mainland China, where they can obviously, with the scale and the manufacturing power, they can produce at a much better cost. So you know, I know a couple of, of companies that I work with are already looking at how do they outsource part of the production also in, in lower cost countries, uh, which is not really done yet to a large extent. And I think that's going to be, uh, that's going to be also something that, uh, is going to be really important to consider. Nabil, what would be your top focus in e-com, uh, for other companies, uh, to abide by and adapt to? I think the, I think the most important right now is really to be able to adapt to the technology that are available out there. It takes, it's really easy to say, um, but it's really hard to execute. We are in a time where there are a lot of solutions out there. Being able to go identify, select partners, independently of your scale and your investment abilities. I think there are already organizations that are tackling the different segments, uh, but today the need for information, the need for speed, and the need to have a centered customer experience towards the final consumer can only be executed through technology. And so if you're not putting that at the center of what you're doing right now, I think it's going to be really, really hard to compete. And I'm not talking about like multi-million dollar investments. I'm talking about the fact that we, independently of the scale, we all have to adapt you know to different level of course of scale and, and needs and, and business but i think that's why i think being at modex being within that ecosystem of innovators people creating new technology is critically important for people in in the industry overall independently that you are a logistic company you're a retailer or you are you are you know a, a brand i think we all have to adapt and, and evolve and i think you know it's something that we've been talking about Again, for many years, technology is at the center. Um, but because of what I explained on the labor aspect, it is more important than ever simply because the cost of labor is going through the roof and that cost never goes back down. So that's there to stay. We have to now adapt to it and we have to be able to build models that are going to be also sustainable. Um, 
you know, we do a lot of work, for example, with um, collaborative robots, which I think is a great uh, also way to keep flexibility and at the same time bring a certain level of automation and efficiencies. Uh, actually, our associate, they love it because you can really remove a harder part or repetitive tasks and bring like a better quality for the associate, a better experience in terms of user interface and so on. And I think these are the things that we should be really looking at uh, in order to improve, to make sure that supply chains, fulfillment operations, last mile delivery are executed better, faster and greener. Thank you very much, Nabil. Um, it uh, it certainly seems that innovation happens at the uh, at the edges of people's comfort zone, and uh, and so thank you for shedding some light on that, on the dynamics and the opportunities in front of us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, the pleasure is mine. I'm looking forward to be at Modex with the team of Texas. So join us there, and we'll be sharing more insights during that session. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Adam, and to the team for having me. Thanks so much, Nabil. Bill Guy, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me here uh, and uh, and hosting Nabil. This has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast uh, for Texas. I'm Adam Polka. Until next time, thank you. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for joining us. We hope that our guests have sparked some new ideas for you and inspire you to push the boundaries for your supply chain operation. New podcasts will be published on the first of every month, and in the meantime, please reach out. We want to know your thoughts about our guests, the topics we covered, and any ideas you might have for future episodes. You can email us at texaspodcast at texas.com. Let us know if you'd be willing to join us and perhaps share your perspective as supply chain experts. And please share us with a colleague and leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback as we continue to evolve the show and line up new compelling interviews. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Until then, this has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka with Texas. And I'm Bill Denby. And thank you for tuning in.